And today we continue our study on the doctrine of the church. And I invite you to open your Bibles once again to First Peter. And that's not the last time. Next Lord's Day, the Lord willing, we're going to work through this passage. But I think it's a wonderful passage, First Peter chapter 2, to give us an idea of where we are going, what we believe about the church. So if you want to open your Bibles, First Peter chapter 2. Verse 9 and 10. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. As we continue our journey through the doctrine of the church, the question I asked last Lord's Day was, what is the church? What is the church? Who is the church? Is it a human institution created to facilitate the interests of like-minded people? Is that what the church is? Just a group of people created by man just to facilitate, since we have the same like-mindedness. So that would be good for us to get together. Is it a group of narrow-minded and bigot people? Is it a building? Where people gather once a week to sing, spend an hour together. I think we all can agree here one thing. There is much confusion about the church. Especially outside the church. And we should expect that. They don't have the spirit to understand the scriptures and the truth of God. But there is much confusion also, I believe, inside the church about the nature of the church. Uh, let me give you one example. John Walverwood. John Walverwood, he's very famous into the dispensation school of thought. In his book, The Rapture Question, John Walverwood, he writes, Not only do the scriptures indicate that the church of the present age is a distinct body of believers. I would agree with him. To a certain point, yes. But here's the problem. is His butt here. But there is good evidence that the age itself is a parenthesis in the divine program of God as it was revealed in the Old Testament. Those who distinguish clearly between the church and Israel have recognized the present age as unexpected. An unpredicted parenthesis as far as Old Testament prophecy is concerned. So, and that's what I said last Lord's Day. That the whole concept of the rapture of the church is that the church is basically a parenthesis, an accident in, in the history of redemption. And so you see, especially with the classic dispensationalism, now we have progressive dispensationalism and, it, and it's... A, much better than the classic and the old dispensational school of thought. That was so messed up that they would say that there, was, there were two types of salvation. One for the people in the Old Testament and one for the people in the church. But you see that they reject completely the continuity in God's redemptive purposes. So for them, Israel has nothing to do with the church and the church has nothing to do with Israel. The Old Testament has nothing to do with the New, and the New has nothing to do with the Old. It's basically where we come. But on the other hand, our brothers in the Presbyterian Church and other Reformed circles, I would put here that there is the other extreme. 
So one extreme is to say that the church has absolutely nothing to do with the Old Testament, with, with Israel. And on the other hand is to say that we are exactly like Israel. And I know that they're going to say, I agree with a lot, with much of what our brothers in the Presbyterian circles or covenant theology that they call what they say. But there is a, a problem there is that they see this continuity without some aspects of discontinuity that the Bible presents. So, for example, that's why you have infant baptism. Why do they have infant baptism? Because they believe that actually we are just like the Israel of the Old Testament. And how was the Israel of the Old Testament? was a mixed community. So, in the Israel of the Old Testament, there was a mixed community. You have people who were truly saved, and you have people who were not saved, and they all received the sign of the covenant. So, they moved that to the new, and they say that that's exactly the church. We are the Israel, so we just need to pass the sign to our children. They are children of the covenant, and the church is a mixed community. So, there is a problem with discontinuity. One has a problem with continuity, the other has a problem with discontinuity. And that's why I think the issue is, is to see uh, how the Bible develops in the covenants, reaching the new covenant. So, my goal is to show you that the church is not an accident or a parenthesis in history, but the culmination of God's outworking plan to save His people from the beginning of time to the end of time. Because the church is the consummate expression of God's eternal plan of redeeming a people for Himself. Under a new covenant, under a new headship, Jesus Christ, And I think key is to understand God's progress with His covenants. And you hold your Bible, your English Bibles, and it's divided in two parts. What are the two parts that we divide the English Bible? On the New Testament, right? Uh, the word testament comes from the Latin testamentus and means covenant. Covenant. That's the idea. So, you have the Bible divided in Old Covenant and New Covenant. And we have reasons to agree with. Paul talks about the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. Uh, the word testamentum or covenant reminds us that there is a continuity with God's covenants. The covenants are God's means to reveal His redemptive purposes. It's through the covenants that God reveals who He is and what He is doing. So, the word testament, Old and New Testament, or Old and New Covenant, is good because it reminds us that our God is a God of what? Covenants. Covenant-keeping God. But there is also a problem. And the problem is, because of this division... People actually forget that the Bible is one book. It's one book. It's one major book. The Bible is one book written by one main author with one story about one Savior saved one people for one purpose. His glory. So sometimes the division can cause the issue of we just keep the New Testament. Just the New Testament. It's ours. So, the division of Old and New Testament can easily lead people to think that the Old Testament is irrelevant for Christians and that the church has nothing to do with the Hebrew Scriptures. Actually, the Old Testament is for the Hebrews, for the Jews. Bah, wrong. That's wrong. That's ours. That's not the Jews. Unless you're talking about the biblical definition of Jews. The ones with the circumcision of the heart. Those born of God, yes, but not for natural Jews. 
Mm-mm. It's our book. Paul can talk to the Corinthians. To the Corinthians. Think about the Corinthians. Gentiles to the core. A lot of them. And he talks about Moses and the patriarchs as their fathers. Your fathers. So that's the danger. To stop looking at the Old Testament as our book, as God's plan, can easily lead people to think that the Old Testament is irrelevant for Christians and that the church has nothing to do with the Hebrew Scriptures. So the church loses its roots in God's redemptive history, leading to a low and anemic, weak view of the church. The church becomes a new concept that can be remodeled and created by man's innovative ideas. That's why it's important to know God has always had one plan to save His people with one Savior, even though progressively He reveals little by little what He's doing to save His people. Today we find ourselves under the New Covenant. That's a fact. The New Testament is very clear about that. But the New Covenant is not the product of a surprising decision of the triune God. It's not like caught God by surprise. Actually, I had a plan for old Israel. And we know they messed up. They reject Jesus. I had no idea that they were going to reject Jesus. My plan was to establish my kingdom in Israel. And caught me by surprise. They killed Jesus. And now I had to come up with the church. Mm-mm. The new covenant is not a surprise for God. It's not an ex- unexpected act in view of a chaotic history going into despair, but the perfect plan of a perfect God. The Bible is one story with one main author about one main, sa- main Savior who saves one people for one purpose, and that's His glory. But this story is developed throughout history with different people in different epochs under different covenants, culminating with the new covenant in Jesus Christ. So you think about the Bible. The structure of the Bible is around six major covenants. Six major covenants. I would say with creation, with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, Moses, David, and ultimately, the New Covenant. And these covenants are the backbone of the Bible. And in each one of them, God progressively reveals more and more about His plan of saving His people. So we think about the covenants. And in each covenant, God builds upon the other. That's what I'm going to show you. I, I hope to show you today. They are not random things like the dispensation list. Believe one has nothing to do with the other. No, they're all connected. God is building one covenant on top of the other, thus revealing more and more what He's doing. So it's in the context of this covenant that God promises that one day a new covenant would be established, and under this new covenant, a new community would be created under a new king, the Davidic king. So, my prayer is that as we, as we look at the Old Testament, the development of the, the God's redemptive purposes, that we would see that the church has always been in God's heart. Just like we saw last Lord's Day, we look at creation. God created marriage. Why did God create marriage? Because it's good. But as Paul says, to illustrate the church. Think about that. It's not like God said, oh, your marriage is so good. All right. Let me create the church to illustrate that. It's the opposite. He loves His people so much that marriage is a way of resembling the type of His love for His people. God has always had a plan to redeem His people for His glory, for Himself. A people 
who would do what Adam was supposed to do, to bear his image and likeness in expanding God's kingdom and enjoying His presence. And this people is called the Church of God. The Church of God. Acts 20, 28, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, the Church of God. The word church, ecclesia, actually derives from the Old Testament. The Greek version of the Old Testament. And that was for the assembly of Israel. Related to the assembly of Israel. And that's why I want to start, I want to start this overview of the Old Testament. With uh, looking at, first of all, Israel. Israel. As a nation, think about the nation of Israel. And let's kind of go slow here. Where does that name come from? Genesis 32, right in the beginning. Remember, one man, and that man resembles the whole nation. Jacob. And he receives the name Israel. Who was Jacob's father? Isaac. Who was Isaac's father? Abraham. Yeah. So, nation of Israel, Israel, connect to Abraham. Abraham, connect to Noah. We have all these genealogies leading to Adam. Okay? So, you see how it's interwoven, this story. It's one story here. And the story of Abraham, and think about the Abrahamic covenant. The story of Abraham follows on the heels of the account of Noah, or the Noahic covenant, and the Tower of Babel. After Adam and Noah, God is making another new start, now with Abram and his family. And they basically constitute another Adam. And that's what, exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. Paul, in Romans chapter 4, he, he talks about Abraham as if there was a new beginning there. And the covenant with Abraham must be interpreted in light of God's covenant with Adam and Noah. Noah is a type of Adam. The flood account has a lot of connections with the creation account. Is that just coincidence? No. God is showing all these things. There is connection here. And that's important. So we don't think that God is just arbitrarily making this covenant and He has no idea what He's doing. He says, oh, that messed up here. Let me start now. Oh, no, He has one plan. And you see, especially the, I have here, the, the great commission given to Adam in Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue and have dominion over the flesh, the fish and of the sea. So that mandate to Adam is passed over and over again to the patriarchs. So it's passed to Noah. It's passed to Abraham. It's passed to Abraham's sons. Why is that? Why is that? God is doing one thing. It's one plan of salvation. He cannot get His covenants, God's way of dealing, and try to separate from the rest of the story. That's how precious the church, God's people, is in God's sight. The Creation Commission, or the Great Commission, is passed on from Adam, Noah, Abraham, and all his children, culminating with Israel, coming to Jesus. And Jesus reinterprets that commission under the new covenant in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Right? That's just the development of redemptive history. But Noah, like Adam, he failed, and all his de descendants were unable to fulfill God's mandate. They built a name and a city for themselves, remember? 
That's the opposite of God commanded. That's the story of Babel. Babel. They built a name and a city for themselves and instead of expanding God's kingdom and glorifying His name, they tried just to build a city. They're supposed to expand the things. It's in this context that God calls Abraham and he enters into a covenant with Abraham. Thus, Abraham and his family, later called Israel, is, as it were, a last Adam. God's making a major new start here. And if you're writing down, you can... Write down Genesis 12. That's the calling of Abraham. That's when the Lord calls Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Pay attention to these words. Your name great, I will bless you, a land, I'll make you a great nation. Because the same promises are given to David. Okay? The hope with Abraham is that the nation's relationship with God that has been broken will be restored. Like Adam, Abraham will establish God's rule over the earth, undoing the curse. That's the hope we have as we see the story unfolding. Genesis 15, God comes and makes a covenant with Abraham. You remember Genesis 15? Darkness, the animals always split apart, the pathway with blood. And the majestic God comes down in humility and walks between those parts to tell Abraham that he will be faithful to save his people. That's the covenant with Abraham. And then you move to Genesis 17. If you have your Bibles, you can just turn really quickly there. Uh, move from Genesis 15 to Genesis 17. And God appears once again to, to Abraham in order to uphold and expand that covenant made earlier. So God comes again. It's not that He's making a new covenant. He's upholding. He's reminding Abraham and expanding that covenant made with him earlier. Genesis 17. And we read Genesis 17 verses 1 through 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Key word, walk before me. God calls Abram to walk before me. What is to walk before God? Does that mean that you go ahead of Him? That God's behind you? The whole concept is you are an emissary. You are going to proclaim the goodness of God. You are going ahead of people to show what a relationship with God looks like. That's the whole idea of walk before me. When the world looks at Abram, they will see what it's like to have a right relationship with God and to be what God intended for humanity. And it's interesting that He gives a piece of land and that piece of land is the major route in the whole ancient world. That piece of land is not by chance. That's the connection of all the major routes had to pass through the land of Canaan. So it's right there that God will make that people to walk before them and show the nations who are passing by what is to have a relationship with the Creator. It's evangelistic. Related to the priesthood. They need to be priests. Showing what is to live before God. And then in Genesis 17, you have the circumcision. You have the sign of the circumcision. And I believe that's deeply connected to the call to walk before the Lord. A lot of times... They come up with the most crazy ideas. They say that, oh, the circumcision was for healthy issues or hygienic purposes. And the law foods also were... So what happened? God changed His mind and then suddenly He's like, alright, you don't need to circumcise and eat these foods anymore. As if, okay, now everything is healthy and good. That has nothing to do with that. That's why for me it makes no sense when people say, oh, the, the, the food loss was to, to preserve their health. 
And then suddenly, in the time of Jesus, Jesus says, hey, it's abolished that. It's fulfilled. You can eat pig. As if God already changed His mind. And now, in the time of Moses, it was not okay. But we improved the culinary so much that now it's okay for you to eat pig. It's like, or yeah, in the time of Abraham too, up to today, you should circumcise because it was a health issue. But now we're changing things. The world improved. That has nothing to do. The whole point is to walk before Him. Is to be a nation of priests. In Egypt, in ancient world, priests were circumcised. That's the whole point. It's a nation of priests, of people who walk before the Lord. And He will develop that in Exodus 19, as we will see. Later in the history of Israel, they're called a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Circumcision will remind every male Israelite that he is a priest, specially consecrated for Yahweh in his service. The family of Abraham and Sarah were to, to be signified as the priesthood of Yahweh from birth. Like Adam. Adam was a priest in the garden. So Genesis ends with Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, being fruitful and multiplying. They're in Egypt. They're a great nation, fulfilling what God had promised. And the book of Exodus starts to develop the promise of the land that was given to Abraham. Do you see how it's connected? The Abrahamic covenant with the Mosaic covenant, or the old covenant. Now, he promised Abraham a land. Now in the book of Exodus, we are going to develop that promise of the land. The Mosaic Covenant is how the people must live in the land. So, the covenant with Israel, or Mosaic Covenant, is built upon the Abrahamic Covenant. And you see that the covenant with Abraham is the basis for delivering Israel. I have here the, the covenant with Abraham is the basis for delivering Israel. The Mosaic Covenant at Sinai is, in turn, the basis for God's covenant with David. So you see, it's all this connection between the covenants. There is a continuity. The church is not an accident. God's plan to save His people through covenants. And that's what we see in Exodus 19. That's when Yahweh marries His bride, Israel. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I, I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. We just read that in First, first Peter 2. Among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. It's impossible to separate the Mosaic, old covenant with the Abrahamic covenant. They're deeply connected. Throughout the book of Exodus, God comes to rescue Israel because of His covenant with Abraham. Brothers and sisters, why am I saying that? So you can see the, the continuity. It's not something new that God is creating. The covenants are not just some random things that God's just coming up out of the bloom. Boom. Oh, let's make this covenant now. Or different dispensations that has nothing to do with one another. No, they're all connected. All connected. And you go through the nation of Israel and this new covenant with built upon Abraham's Abrahamic covenant, you see that the nation of Israel is first of all treated as the elect nation, just like Noah, just like Abraham. They were chosen by God. He says, How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. They're a chosen nation, chosen by God's grace, a treasure possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. In Exodus 4, the nation of Israel is called the Son of God. My firstborn, God says. My firstborn. We see all this terminology here will be applied 
in the new covenant with God's people. Sons of God we are. Israel is the son of God. There is a God-son relationship. Sonship speaks of representation. A son represents his father. Adam represented God by being a king, exercising dominion. So Israel is now to be a new son of God, a new Adam. Israel is to be like Adam, an image bearer of God's glory. And God requires obedience. That's key in this covenant. God requires obedience. And if they're not obedient, you can read Leviticus 18, they will lose the land. That's why you've got to be very careful with the word eternal, everlasting. Because a lot of people say, oh, but God said it's eternal promise, the land. And he said that the ironic priesthood would be eternal also. We don't have that anymore. Priests from the line of Aaron. So you've got to be very careful and understand how God defines eternal promises. How they find their fulfillment in the only one who is eternal, Jesus Christ. God says, Leviticus 18, If you break my covenant, I will vomit you out of the land. Much debate about the land of Palestine and Israel. Oh, but that's their land. Brothers and sisters, it was under the old covenant when they're obedient to the Lord. There is a new covenant. They broke the covenant. We have no biblical reason to guarantee and, and affirm that that's their land. Mm-mm. Not under a new covenant, especially in light of they breaking the covenant and God promising that He would kick them out and give the land to other people. So we have the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and then we move to the Davidic Covenant. With the nations, think about that. Just, brother and sisters, just try now, please, to see the progress with Abraham. God promised a land, promised a great nation. He promised that kings would come from that great nation. Read Genesis 17. And then he moved to Mosaic Covenant, how to live in the land. And now he moved to the Davidic Covenant about the king that God had promised. Kings would come from Abraham. Think about the books of Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. They all reveal the necessity of a godly king to serve and lead Israel. And then in 2 Samuel 7, we have that wonderful promise, God's covenant with David. And you read 2 Samuel, especially verses 8 to 16, and I underline there. Look at that. And I will make for you a great name. And I will appoint a place. I will give you rest. That's with Adam. The rest. They had no rest after the fall. That's Jesus giving true rest. I will raise up your what? seed, your offspring, going back to the seed of the woman. You see how they're all connected, passing to Abraham, the seed of Abraham, and now to David. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to be a son. When he commits iniquity, look at the requirement of obedience. I will discipline him with the rod of man. So you see that the Davidic covenant is completely connected to the Abrahamic covenant. And some of you are just like, I have no idea you're talking about. And that's okay. I hope that one day, as you grow, as you start developing the habit of reading the Bible and growing your understanding, you will grasp this because that's crucial to understand where and who we are. Okay? So you see how the Abrahamic covenant is deeply connected to the Davidic covenant. God is not just creating things out of the bloom. <gasps> that comes by surprise. I need to create a new covenant now. 
That's one plan that He has been developing progressively. He has been revealing progressively. And remember what I said last Lord's Day. Intertextuality and types. Things that God brought in the beginning and the other authors. And God Himself is using once again and developing those themes. Given the clear connection between the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, there can be no doubt that they are inextricably related. In the Davidic covenant, the promises made to Abraham become more focused. The Davidic dynasty inherits the promises of the patriarchal covenant. The special divine human relationship and the attendant blessings now belong primarily to the Davidic royal lineage. Thus, the Davidic covenant serves to identify at a later stage in Genesis through Kings the promised line of seed that will mediate blessings to all nations of the earth. The Davidic covenant identifies the royal dynasty from which the anticipated victorious seed of Abraham would come. That's key. God is developing, showing more. Who is that seed? that He promised the woman in the first covenant. Who is the seed that He develops and shows Abraham? And now who is that seed He's promised him to David? It's going to come from your lineage. Thus, the kingship in Israel was to be a means to accomplishing Exodus 19. The king would be a devoted servant and the son of God and would also function as a priest, instructing the nations in the righteousness of God. There is a requirement for obedience. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. The Lord requires obedience. That's why it's key that Jesus comes and we have what? His perfect obedience. Okay? Because God requires perfect obedience. And this Davidic king is developed. Is developed through all the prophets. And they start, they start seeing more and more clear that this Davidic king is not just a man. He's actually going to be this representative of the people. And he's actually Emmanuel. God with us. He's divine. The prophets cannot understand it very well, but God is revealing some things about this Davidic king, the seed who will be the representative of his people. But the problem is that Israel failed, all her kings failed. Israel, like Adam, failed to be a kingdom of priests. The nation, as the Son of God, was to resemble God. They were to show what looked like to be God's image bearers. It was through them that the Abrahamic blessing was to be realized and thus God's redemptive promises brought to pass. But as you read the prophets, you see that they are interpreting the history of Israel in a very negative aspect. They failed. They cannot fulfill. How about the kings? Yes, David. The covenant with David. Afterwards, he turned the page and it's like, Oh no, David, why did you do that? Then he gets Solomon. Yeah, Solomon, look at Solomon. He's doing so good. And suddenly what? Mm, it's not Solomon. And then you go through the historical books and you see that there is no king that can actually fulfill what is expected of a Davidic king. So, we come to the new covenant. God reveals to the prophets, His servants, that a new covenant must be established. The old covenant had been broken. Israel and her kings were unfaithful to God. They did not resemble God's image. Therefore, the Lord promised a new covenant. A covenant in which God Himself would keep all the stipulations and terms in order to restore the fall and undo the consequence of sin. So God said, revealing a new covenant is coming. The prophets speak about this new covenant. They speak in different languages, different terms. Some speak about the everlasting covenant or the covenant of peace. Why the covenant of peace? Because the relationship is broken. 
We need shalom. We need harmony. And this new covenant will bring the harmony between God and His people forever. It's an everlasting covenant. It's a covenant of peace. Or sometimes it's just treated as the promise of a new heart and a new spirit. And Jeremiah 31, he talks about as the new covenant. It's all the same covenant with different words to resemble the different aspects of this new covenant. All these different prophets give us different facets of this new covenant. This new covenant is the climatic fulfillment of the covenant that God established with the patriarchs, the nation of Israel, and the dynasty of David. So the promises of these earlier covenants find their ultimate fulfillment in the new covenant. In such promises, in it, such promises become eternal in the truest sense. this promise. And that's what they're hoping. That's the long expectation of the prophets, of the exilic, post-exilic people is, we need this new covenant to be established. The old covenant is broken. They're guilty. God has departed. They have been kicked out of their land. And in this new covenant, God promises that there will be the complete removal of sins, that He will give a new heart, inner transformation, circumcision of the heart. There will be an intimate relationship with Yahweh. They will know Me. And what's interesting is that the new covenant promised the house of Israel and Judah would be the household with foreigners and international members. Isaiah 54, turn there. It's, a, it's an amazing passage. Turn to Isaiah 54. What comes before Isaiah 54? 53. <laughs> Good, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and what is Isaiah 53 all about? The suffering servant. This king who represents his people. The one and the many. Isaiah 54, O sing, O barren, sing, O barren, one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of her tent and let the curtains of her habitation be stretched out. And here it's a fascinating passage where Isaiah, he refers to all the old covenants. So the first one, who was barren? Sarah, Abrahamic covenant. He talks about the days of Noah, Noahic covenant. Then he talks about Zion, the Davidic covenant. And he goes on, just talk about all these covenants and how they're going to find their fulfillment in this new Davidic king who is coming. And he just said before, this Davidic king will be a suffering servant. And he goes and he says that nations, nations will come and he will bless the nations. Verse 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. He's not talking about children of covenant here in the sense that our babies would know the Lord. That's not the promise. Children here is the descendants. That's the same promise that Jeremiah says. And you will know the Lord. You see, the prophets keep using the earlier prophetic oracles to build their prophecies. And then chapter 55, he also talks about this new covenant, this new Davidic king, Verse 3, incline your ears, come to me, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, and a leader, and a commander for the peoples. Isaiah 56, the foreigners coming and being part of the temple, being part of the temple of the Lord. That's the new covenant promises. 
a new community with international people, with foreigners coming, being part of Israel. But this community is going to be different. They're going to have a new heart. They're going to have this spirit. And that's why when you come to the New Testament, you come to the New Testament, we see how clear and how emphatic the New Testament is to show that the life and death of Jesus brought about the inauguration of the New Covenant. The New Testament shows us that Jesus ratified, inaugurated this long-awaited covenant. In Jesus Christ, all the preceding covenants are filled full. He fulfills all those promises of the Old Covenant. That's why when He's instituting the Lord's table, He says, Luke 22, 20, and likewise, the cup, He takes the cup and says, This cup is poured out for you, and it is what? The New Covenant. That's the New Covenant in my blood. Either Jesus was crazy, an egomaniac liar to say that all the new covenant promises are now fulfilled right here. Or it's true. And it is true. And that's what the New Testament so emphatically does. It should show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those earlier covenants. All those promises. There is a reason why you start with the Gospels. And you get the Gospel of Matthew and the genealogy traces Jesus to where? To Abraham, to David. Why? Here is the Davidic king. Here is the fulfillment of all those promises. Luke traces Jesus back to Adam. Then you go through the New Testament and you see Jesus fulfills the role of Adam. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. Jesus fulfills and transcends the Mosaic covenant. Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant. Passage after passage, Jesus is the Davidic shepherd spoken by Ezekiel. Jesus is the Israel in which salvation comes to the Gentiles. Jesus brings the forgiveness of sins promised in the new covenant. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus alone can give the rest that was so expected. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. That's why Paul can say, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's why it's through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. Not some promises. Not some promises. All the promises. All the covenants find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Not some. That's our brothers in the dispensation camp. Some promises. They're the promises for the nation of Israel. Paul says all the promises find their amen in Him. And today we, we as Christians, we find ourselves under the New Covenant. That's why the New Testament is so emphatic also about in Jesus. You get a concordance and try to find how many times the New Testament talks about Christians being in Jesus why is it important? Because we are in Jesus and He is the fulfillment of all those covenant promises that God made before. And because we are in Christ, Paul and the New Testament authors constantly apply to the church, that is, the mixed Jewish Gentile congregations, to whom he writes the great covenant ideas and terms which had previously belonged to Israel. Why does the New Testament use all that terminology, all that precious terminology that was used for Israel and Abraham to the church now? Because we are in Christ and Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises. Since Jesus is Israel filled full, we who are in Him are also part of this new and greater Israel. And that's the that's what people are going to say. Oh, you guys are spiritualizing. It's allegory what you're doing. No. This is not allegorical. spiritualizing hermeneutic by which the predominantly Gentile church is to be identified with Israel. But it is what we might call a legal representative or corporate 
hermeneutics that underlies this identification of the church. Jesus as the new and true Davidic king, the new Adamic son of God, is the representative of all his people. And that's why the church now receives all the honorific titles given to Israel. Because we are in Christ. So you go through the New Testament, the church is God's beloved. Who was God's beloved? Israel. Now it's applied to the church. The Greek word for church, ecclesia, as I said, derives from the assembly of Israel. The members of the church are called sons of God. Israel was son of God. The church is called the seed of Abraham, a kingdom of priests. The church is God's lampstand. Who was God's lampstand? According to Zechariah, Israel. The church is the restoration of David's tabernacle, Acts 15. The church is the flock of God. That was the title for Israel. Yahweh is my shepherd. The church is the Israel of God. The church is the bride of Yahweh. That was the title of Israel before. The church is the army of the Spirit. That's what Ezekiel sees. Remember the dead bones coming to life? An army filled with the Spirit? That's the church now. That's how Paul applies that. The church is God's vineyard. Who was God's vineyard in the Old Testament? Israel. Okay? So, you see, you behold this continuity, this beautiful, glorious plan of God to save His people being developed throughout the Old Testament. However, we must remember there, there are new things, new aspects connected to the new covenant, the new covenant community. The church is new, both redemptive and historically, in regards to its nature and its structure. In other words, the church is not like the old Israel, a mixed entity, but actually it's a community of regenerated and saved people. So, according to the promises, this new covenant and this new covenant community would be a community in which every member was born and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Think about that. That was the, what Moses was longing for. Oh, how, how I wish that everyone here had this Spirit. That's what Joel sees. The day is coming when everyone will receive the Spirit. And how do the New Testament apply? It's right here, right now, the church. In the church community, all its members know the Lord. To know the Lord is the same as to be known by the Lord, is to have an intimate, salvific, redemptive relationship with Him. To know the Lord is to love Him. And the members of the New Covenant community are forgiven. And now we'll forgive their sins and now we'll remember them no more. That's the promise of Jeremiah. That's why, that's why, the church should be very careful in admitting people to membership. Are they saved? Do they have the Spirit? Do they know the Lord? Because the new covenant community is a community of people, not of mixed people, but of people who are born of the Spirit. See all these churches today, like a big party. Everyone. No, brothers and sisters. There is a progression here. God is developing. And He comes and says, in this new covenant, this new covenant community, the people will know me. They will love me. They will be filled and born with the Spirit. They will have their sins forgiven. That's why we don't do infant baptism in this church. We don't believe that by nature you're children of the covenant. That's why there is continuity and there is discontinuity. It's a new covenant. A new community here. That's why we don't baptize. We don't put the, 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 the great sign that you're saved in babies. The days are coming. I'm making a new covenant. 
And they will be forgiven. All right, this baby is a baby of the new covenant. Wait, are, are his sins forgiven? Was he born of the Spirit? They see, it's a lack of understanding, the discontinuity and the newness of this new covenant. That's why we are serious about the Lord's Supper. Who partakes of the Lord's Supper? Everyone can come and partake. Wait, wait a second. We are proclaiming that you are forgiven, that you are part of this new covenant community. That's why we are serious about church discipline. Wait a second. Your life is not resembling a life under the new covenant. And we will talk about these things as we go with our series. So what is the church? The church is the people of God, redeemed by God under the headship of Jesus Christ. The church is the object of all God's promises. Because all God's promises have their amen in Jesus. And because the church is the body of Christ, is in Jesus, therefore, we have all His promises. The church is not an accident or a parenthesis in history, but the culmination of God's outworking plan to save His people from the beginning of time to the end of time. Thus, the church is the consummate expression of God's eternal plan of redeeming a people for Himself. There is no light or trivial thing. Walk throughout the whole history of mankind and God outworking His plans to save His people. And you're going to treat the church as just a human institution. They can come and go whenever you feel like. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. Woe to those who make little of what God considers great and work so majestic throughout history to bring forth a new community under a new covenant, under a new headship. As I say, you can't talk about the church, the mission of the church. Everyone, everybody wants to talk about the mission. Everyone is an expert in what the church should be doing, right? But what is the church? What is the church? It's majestic God, Almighty God, working throughout history, in order to bring about this new covenant, a new covenant community. That's no little thing. And Paul understood that. He understood how precious the church is to God. Because remember, he's persecuting the church. And the Lord of the universe comes to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting what? Me. Me. Don't mess with the church. And today, as I said, it's a very precious day. The Lord's Supper, that's all we do at the Lord's Supper. It's a celebration that we are proclaiming to each other and to others that we are under this new covenant, under a new headship, a new creation. All the promises of God have their Amen and Amen in Jesus and in this new covenant. It's an honor to obey the Lord in celebrating the inauguration of the new covenant. All redemptive history from the fall of Adam to about 3 BC when Jesus came was moving progressively to the institution of this new covenant. Lord, what a privilege, what a joy what immeasurable grace to be part of your people, to be under the new covenant, while the prophets and the people of old longed for, today we can enjoy. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for forgiving our sins and our iniquities and remembering them no more. No more. So we praise You. We thank You. Help us as we walk through this series about the church. Help us to love what You love. Help us to treasure what You treasure, Lord. 
the whole purpose of being predestined and saved is to be transformed into the image of Christ. So help us to grow into His image, loving what He loves and hating what He hates. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make His face shine upon you.